Hello everyone. For today's episode, we're going to be joined by the lovely Naya Chu, who will be helping me tell this intense and complex case. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it's not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Superstitious Minds, which is a documentary that explores the wide variety of superstitions common in today's society, and it's a documentary that I feel connects to today's case. How do we come to believe them, where do they come from, and what do they tell us about ourselves? As you move through this world of irrational beliefs, some frightening and others hilarious, you will meet skeptics and believers, experts and ordinary people. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and grab yourself a one month free trial to go watch Superstitious Minds and once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As of this video going live, Magellan TV are currently running their holiday promotion where if you buy a one year gift card for a subscription to Magellan TV, you get a second one for free. So it's perfect for those who are maybe haven't quite bought something yet or it's for someone at work or someone of a friend who you haven't quite had a chance to exchange gifts with it's the perfect thing to do so make sure you go to the links below and grab that deal before it's gone and if you're watching this after the christmas season in 2021 then there is the one month free trial still up for grabs so make sure you go grab that too as I said before, new documentaries like Superstitious Minds are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. Grab your promotional offer or one month free trial right now using the links below. And a massive thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. Throughout this episode, we will be making reference to a particular authoritarian party that occupied Germany during World War II. Naturally, YouTube is not a big fan of me mentioning this particular party or this particular group, and so we shall be referring to them as the authoritarian party that occupied Germany during World War II. I apologise in advance if this causes any confusion. The book Secrets Don't Tell, the Encyclopedia of Hypnotism by Carla Emery, and the book Antisocial or Criminal Acts and Hypnosis, a case study by Paul J. Reiter, were paramount to my research in this case. Bjorn Skow Nielsen was born on Tuesday the 27th of October 1914 in Copenhagen, Denmark. 
Not all too much is known about Bjorn's upbringing, but what we do know is that by the age of 16, he had already found his way into prison. It would be the first of many stints that Bjorn would spend behind bars. According to one source, during the Second World War, Bjorn actually aided in smuggling Jewish people from Denmark to Sweden, though after shooting a German soldier, Bjorn quote, betrayed the Jewish people so that he could reconcile with the Germans. This same source then goes on to state that during the Danish authoritarian party that occupied Germany during World War II occupation, Bjorn actually became a member of the volunteer corps for that same authoritarian party, known as Frikor Denmark. It then claims that he went on to betray the Germans at some point. Following the end of the year in January of 1947, Bjorn was sentenced to imprisonment at Horsen State Prison, which is a prison facility designed to house Denmark's worst offenders. This was due to the crimes he had committed during the occupation of Denmark during World War II. You see, Bjorn was the kind of person who was always on the lookout for a profit. During the occupation of World War II, he had actually informed on his employer at the time to the Germans and had blackmailed a resistance movement businessman for a substantial amount of money. And so he had found his way back into prison. As Bjorn was behind bars, he began to plan his next crime. Though this time, it would be the perfect crime. A crime that he would get away with, one that would be impossible to track back to him, a crime where somebody else would take the fall while he reaped the rewards. Bjorn was so confident in his plans to commit the perfect crime that he started bragging to other prisoners within the facility numerous times. It's speculated that while Bjorn was behind bars, he caught wind of the 1936 case of criminal hypnosis that had occurred in Sweden called the Sala Affair. In this case, a criminal hypnotist formed a gang of young men and women who the hypnotist hypnotized to gain money through the sale of cocaine, prostitution, robbery, and even murder. This conditioning on the gang had been conducted through occultism, yoga, and hypnosis. It had been a big case at the time and had made headlines in the papers, and it suggested that Bjorn became inspired by it and began to study hypnosis while in prison and he studied it hard. He learnt all about the traits that a person who could be manipulated through hypnotic suggestion would have, and rehearsed and practised hypnotic techniques on other inmates constantly. This was the root of his plan for the perfect crime. All Bjorn needed now was a victim to carry out his perfect crime, and it wasn't long before the perfect victim would walk into Bjorn's life. Bjorn had met a man called Pal Hardwick, not long after arriving at the prison facility, and using what he'd learned from his hypnosis studies, he determined that Pal had the characteristics of someone that could be susceptible to hypnosis. You see, Pal had become depressed during his stay behind bars and was looking to turn to religion to try and find comfort, a fact that Bjorn was keen to prey on. Pal Hartwig had been born on Sunday the 3rd of December 1922 in Copenhagen and actually had an identical twin brother. And together, Pal and his twin were the only children of their middle-class Danish parents. His family were comfortable before and after World War II financially, with his father being a respectable hard worker and his mother being well-liked and forward-thinking. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. According to one source during Paul's childhood, he was described as being intelligent, sensitive, reliable, good with his hands, and goal-oriented. And Paul would later tell of how he had formed five-year plans throughout his early years, planning on a successful and promising future. He was the kind of person who had never and would never smoke or drink and had saved himself for marriage, waiting for the right person to walk into his life. Though this promising and bright future would be heavily tarnished when in 1940, at the age of 16, he joined a volunteer rifle group that had been formed by the Authoritarian Party that had ruled over Germany during World War II after they had occupied Denmark. Paul then fell into a pipeline that had led him into the youth division of the Danish occupied by the Germans party, then to the German army corps, and then to the German auxiliary police. Though... Despite working with the Germans, Paul refused to follow through on any directions that involved harming other people. When he had been assigned to be a translator by the Germans, he actually shot himself in the leg which resulted in him being reassigned. This ultimately meant that Paul avoided playing any role in the persecution and horrors committed against Danish Jewish people or against members of the Danish resistance organization. Paul would later describe his time with the German Auxiliary Police Force as being the worst three months of his life, and unfortunately for him, his affiliation with the Germans had occurred during the last three months of the war. And when the war came to an end and the Germans were driven out of Denmark, Paul was arrested on the 8th of May 1945 for working with the Germans and was taken to the Horsen State Prison pending a trial. He was placed in solitary confinement upon his arrival at the prison facility, being held in a cellar for a handful of days before being moved to a smaller cell, which he shared with somebody else who had worked with the Germans. The days began to merge into one as he awaited trial, and his cellmates changed with such a frequency that he couldn't keep track of who had been coming and going. It wouldn't be until 16 months later, after his arrest, that he would be put on trial on the 9th of September 1946. And naturally, the attitude towards those who had allied with the Germans from the general public of Denmark 
had been one of hatred. Pell, at the age of 22 years old, would be found guilty and was sentenced to 14 years imprisonment in the same maximum security prison facility that he had been held in for the past 16 months. It's interesting to note that his twin brother had also been arrested and subsequently sentenced for also working with the Germans, though his twin had been given a much lighter sentence. Pell found life in prison extremely difficult, and felt like an outsider throughout his stay there. He would later write about his time in the facility, stating, quote, For me, there was no way back to my earliest youth, before the whole thing began. I did not think that there would be any future for me, even on that distant day, many years in the future, when I might possibly be released. I tried to find a meaning in things from a religious point of view, by thinking that they were ordained by God. I wondered whether he even existed, and how he could have created such a world as ours, but that only made matters worse. I began to doubt whether there was a God who directed the universe, or whether it was not merely one long string of fortitious circumstances. I felt quite alone, as if I were in a diving bell at the bottom of the sea, which was never going to come up again. It's important to touch on an experience that Pell had while in prison, which changed his outlook on his situation. He described the experience as a mystical encounter with what he believed have been a guardian spirit. And this spirit had told Pell that his sentencing had all been a part of God's plan, a test of his character, an opportunity for him to grow his strength. When Pell received this otherworldly message, he suddenly found himself with a fresh sense of hope that things might just work out okay for him. And it was around this same time that Pell met Bjorn Nielsen. Bjorn took full advantage of Pell from the get-go, feeding him lie after lie claiming to be very well versed on religion due to his education in psychical research. Bjorn even went as far as to claim himself a master yogi. He made promises to Pell, telling him that he would teach him all he knew. Bjorn pronounced Pell to be his apprentice in the arts of yoga mastery. Initially, Pell was reluctant to entertain Bjorn's ideologies and proposals, though Bjorn kept working at it, and eventually Pell gave in. Both Pell and Bjorn had been assigned to work together in the prison workroom, and every day in the corner of the workroom, the pair, led by Bjorn, did spiritual exercises. Bjorn avoided mentioning the word hypnosis during these sessions, choosing his words carefully as to not let Pell see his true intentions. Bjorn performed an exercise on Pell which involved making him believe that his hands were locked together and that he couldn't separate them. And when Pell did the exercise and was unable to separate his hands purely due to what Bjorn was suggesting to him, Bjorn knew that he had found the perfect candidate to carry out his perfect crime. Pell was blissfully unaware that his new spiritual guide, his new best friend, was conditioning him with mind control techniques. Following the success of the hand-locking exercise, Bjorn asked Pell to request to share his cell with him. You see, Pell had a good prisoner record, and so was highly likely to have this request approved. When this request was approved, Pell was surrounded by Bjorn constantly. Bjorn would tell Pell what to do, and Pell would blindly follow every word of his command. And between spring of 1947 to the autumn of 1949, the pair spent practically every waking moment together whether it was in their cell or in the workroom. The teachings that Bjorn showed Paul only grew more complex and more intensive. 
One day, Bjorn told Paul that he had figured out a shortcut to achieve a meditative trance-like state that was euphoric, and Paul was desperate to learn how to get to that trance state. He followed Bjorn's every instruction. Paul fell into a deep trance-like state, which left him vulnerable for any form of suggestion put forward by Bjorn. And finally, as Paul was in his trance, Bjorn proposed the idea of hypnosis to him. Bjorn made Paul believe that Paul was very difficult to hypnotize and that Bjorn had been very susceptible to hypnosis, though the truth had been the opposite. Bjorn faked any hypnosis that Paul attempted on him to keep up the lies and it only saw Paul become more and more comfortable and accepting of the practice. Over the course of the coming weeks, Bjorn deepened the trance that he had put under Paul. And he importantly never once woke Paul up from the trance. He left him to walk around the prison facility in the trance-like state, never in a sound state of mind. So, Paul had been aware that he remained in this trance. And when he brought it up to Bjorn, Bjorn told him that the feeling was a divine connection between him and the gods, something that Paul didn't ever want to break. Bjorn further capitalized on Paul's need to connect with the divine through the use of a new spiritual exercise. In this exercise, Bjorn had Paul hypnotize him. Of course, Bjorn faked actually being hypnotized. And Bjorn began to speak to Paul as if he were channeling some kind of spirit. According to one source, Bjorn told Paul, I am your guardian spirit. You believe that what has happened to you is a great misfortune for you. But that is not the case. It has all been to strengthen you and test you in order that you may carry out the mission which it is your destiny to fulfill. Paul truly believed that his guardian spirit was speaking to him through Bjorn. And so, it was Paul's turn to be hypnotized by Bjorn. While Pell was under, Bjorn told him that Pell's guardian angel was called X and that X was also God. Pell fell deeper into a trance as Bjorn instructed him that from that point onwards, he must follow all the orders given to him by X through Bjorn. And so the method of manipulation and control of Pell was set in stone and Bjorn began to conduct fake seances in which he pretended to have been channeling X's voice. Soon, though, Bjorn began to use symbolism to control Pell. Whenever Bjorn made an X with his body, whether that be his arms or legs, or wrote something followed by an X, Pell did as he commanded. Before long, all Bjorn had to do was say, quote, X as this or that, and Pell would abide. Over the course of the following year, Bjorn began to tell Pell about his mission as he was hypnotized. He told him that X had said that, quote, God was personally commanding Pell to end all wars and to develop and lead a world government in which God and mankind would spiritually be one. Bjorn worked to move any morals that Pell had, anything that would prevent him from executing his perfect crime. The hypnosis and manipulation had been so effective that Bjorn could cause Pell to fall into a deep trance-like state instantly and on demand. 
He taught Pell to be independent from all physical and material ties. Whenever Pell showed resistance to Bjorn's commands, Bjorn would explain of how Pell had a inner resistance caused by a matter-fighting spirit, and instructed Pell to overcome this spirit so that he could carry out the mission that X had instructed him to do. Bjorn began to prepare Pell to commit robbery and murder on his behalf through a technique that used desensitization exercises. He told Powell that he was above all moral principles, such as property and respect for life. X commanded that Powell free himself from his morals, and Bjorn began to make Powell hallucinate, committing minor crimes through deep trance visualizations to begin this process. As time progressed, the hallucination training got more and more intense, moving from petty crime to robbery, murder, and then murdering Pell's own mother. Pell was understandably deeply upset by that last hallucination training, though Bjorn continued to subject him to it time and time again until he became fully desensitized. Bjorn then told Pell that X had instructed him to never reveal Bjorn's involvement in any crime that Pell might commit. Throughout all of this, Pell remained in a deep trance-like state, walking around the prison facility. Pell truly believed that he was in direct contact with God, but he couldn't tell anyone about it. According to one source, his mixture of religious and political delusions was an artificial psychosis created by hypnosis, and to the people around Pell, he seemed like he had more than a few screws loose, to put it kindly. In early 1949, Bjorn had successfully finished hypnoprogramming Pell, and he gave him instructions to break out of the prison and then come back to free Bjorn. And Pell actually attempted this. He carried out exactly what he'd been ordered to do, though he was recaptured by the authorities before he could finish the plan of freeing Bjorn. As a result of the escape attempt, Pell was sentenced to extra prison time, and everybody was none the wiser that Bjorn had been the one behind it. Also in 1949, Horsen's prison, the facility that Bjorn and Pell were being held in, began to shorten the sentences of all prisoners that had been affiliated with the German party from World War II. And Bjorn was released first, a few months before Pell would be released. After Bjorn had been released from the prison, Paul began to snap out of the deep trance state that he had been in. Though with Paul's own release date fast approaching, Bjorn began to send him letters that were signed with the greetings from X. And the fact that Paul had started receiving these letters from X excited him. He was over the moon to soon be reconnected with the divine. On the 29th of October, 1949, Paul was released from the prison and he was given a second chance an opportunity to start afresh and build a better life for himself. But it was too late for Paul. The hold that Bjorn had over him had been too strong. Pell would later write about this, saying, quote, The moment I heard I was to be released, I felt at last God had given me my marching orders. I felt exactly like a soldier, ready to leave for the front. Everything which had happened up to now was only testing which had been designed to bring me up to the peak of my powers and ability. My earthly incarnation was now practically at an end, and only the final short step remained to be taken. The very moments that Pell got back to his parents' house after being released from prison, he called Bjorn so he could get the next instruction from X. Bjorn invited Pell to come to his house the following day, and when he arrived, Bjorn introduced him to his wife, who, after making small talk, left Bjorn and Pell to it. 
Pell would end up visiting Bjorn multiple times a week, and each time Bjorn would hypnotize him. And whenever they didn't meet up, they would call and Pell would receive his instructions from X over the phone. They went through everything they did while being behind bars, all of the desensitization visualizations and hallucinations, repeatedly going through the robbery hallucinations over and over again, and ensuring that Pell knew that nobody could ever know what they were doing and who was behind it. Pell was instructed to stay living with his parents to save up money, and whenever Pell received money, he would give it to Bjorn under the instruction of X. Anything that Pell earned, he gave to Bjorn. Pell's father actually began to grow suspicious of what was going on, and he asked Pell whether Bjorn had been threatening him or had some kind of power over him. Though, Pell retaliated by saying that what his father was accusing Bjorn of was complete and utter nonsense. This is where things began to get even more intense. Bjorn actually arranged for Pell to marry a girl who was called Bente, so that he would be away from his father's suspicious eyes, and Bjorn effectively hypnotised and manipulated Pell to fall in love with this girl, and told him that X had commanded they marry. Pell would later recount this, saying, quote, It's there my guardian spirit usually comes and talks to me. He tells me to relax. He puts his hand on my forehead. He gives me magnetic strokings. Then he says that X has told him to see to it that he has intercourse with Bente. I feel completely paralysed over my whole body. My whole body trembles. He tells me to keep calm. It does not concern me at all. I have a mission which I must fulfil. It is absolutely necessary that I learn how to control others. He says it is my body which resists. I must learn to control my body. He will help me, and he brings me into a state where I no longer belong to this world. After Pell and Bente had married, Bjorn continued to control Pell's finances, and now began to control and collect Bente's finances too. But Bjorn's greed wasn't satisfied. He knew that he wanted more money, and he knew that he could get away with the perfect crime, something he'd been working towards for years. And so... Bjorn told Paul that X had commanded him to go and buy a gun and they began robbery training sessions. X had apparently told Bjorn which exact bank that Paul should rob and where to hide the money afterwards. Paul initially showed resistance to this command, but Bjorn told him that he had to overcome this resistance to fulfill the mission given to him by X and by extension, God. And Paul broke. He was willing to do anything that X had commanded him to do. The 21st of August 1950 was the date set for the robbery to take place, and Paul did exactly what X has instructed him to do. That was until he walked past a church in town on the way to the bank. Paul suddenly felt an overwhelming feeling that he shouldn't do what he had been commanded to do, and so he phoned Bjorn and told him that he couldn't do the robbery. He couldn't potentially hurt the people at the bank who might get hurt if he robbed it. Bjorn replied back to him by saying, I was only testing your will, just relax. I'm busy right now, but I'll speak to your guardian spirit. Come see me at 7 tomorrow evening. It's important to note that Pell couldn't actually remember what had happened that morning. He couldn't remember that he was about to rob a bank, or that he had been unable to carry it out, and so he had gone home and just gone to bed. The following evening, Pell went over to Bjorn's house, and Bjorn put him in an even deeper trance, and heavily drilled into Pell that X commanded he rob the bank. This hypnotic manipulation went on for hours and into the early hours of the morning, 
and the bank robbery was rescheduled for the following day, on the 23rd of August 1950. When the morning came around, Bjorn went to Pell's apartment, where he put him into a deep trance-like state to reaffirm what he should do to rob the bank. He told Pell, quote, You know that it is right. The guardian spirit has said so. Bjorn is only the instrument of your divine spirit. After which, Bjorn left Pell's apartment. Ten minutes later, what was described as the post-hypnotic suggestions began to kick in for Pell, and he began the robbery sequence. Pell rode a bike to the bank, parked it outside, and started walking into the building. Though as he walked through the doorway, he felt his body resist, but he overcame this urge and fought the resistance. Pell walked into the bank, placed a briefcase on the bank teller's counter, and told the bank teller to fill the briefcase with money. The bank employee obligated, filled the briefcase with cash, and gave it back to him. Pal then told everybody in the bank to get down on the floor, just as Bjorn had programmed him to do. Bjorn had instructed him that if anybody refused to do as he said, Pal has to shoot them. Fortunately, everyone in the bank did as they were told, and got down on the floor. Pal left the bank, holding the briefcase full of money, got back on his bike, and rode home. When he got home, he put the bike away and hailed the taxi to the predetermined meeting place that Bjorn had told him to go to. Once Pal had arrived, he handed the briefcase over to Bjorn. The heist had been successful, and the authorities were none the wiser. By the time the 10th of January 1951 came around, more than six months after the bank robbery, Bjorn had begun to run out of money, and so Bjorn decided it was time for another bank robbery. Bjorn invited Pell to come over to his house, and when he arrived, they began the robbery training once again. The second heist was planned for the 29th of March 1951, Bjorn telling Pell that X had decided on that date. Armed with the same gun as before, Pell travelled to the bank by bike, and once again, Pell felt an internal resistance to what he was about to do, and he struggled to overcome this resistance. Pell would later describe this moment, quote, well, this is it. Get it over quickly. Then it's all right. Why the devil have I got a body that has to put up resistance every time I'm going to do anything? Now, I can't do it. Body resisting the will. It is only something to be conquered. It can be conquered. It must be conquered. I lean the bicycle up outside. That's right. Now it's just a matter of three brisk steps. And up those three steps he climbed, walking straight into the bank. Pell pulled out his gun and shot a bullet into the ceiling of the bank. He then put his briefcase on the counter and instructed the bank teller to, once again, fill the briefcase up with money. The bank teller hesitated, and in that exact moment, Pell felt what he believed to be divine power flowing through his body, completely enamoured with the hypnotic delusions installed within him. Everything he had been training for peaked in that moment, and he shot the bank teller killing them instantly. He then turned to the manager of the bank and demanded that he fill the briefcase with money, but the bank manager reached for the alarm switch, though before he could trigger it, Pell shot him fatally too. A different employee of the bank managed to trigger the alarm, and when Pell heard it, he fled the bank. This hadn't been a scenario that he had trained for. There had been no post-hypnotic suggestions for this chain of events. 
and he suddenly snapped out of the trance, finding himself wide awake. Pell would later state that it was in this moment that he felt that X had abandoned him. Pell panicked, jumped on the bike, and pedalled away. Several people tried to chase after him, though he managed to get away from them. All but one person, a 14-year-old boy. This 14-year-old saw Pell go into an apartment building, and so got the attention of a police officer and told him where he'd seen Pell go. The police descended on the apartments where they found Pell, who confessed to being the bank robber. And with the police by his side, they entered Bjorn's apartment. Inside the apartment was a drunk old woman. Bjorn was nowhere to be seen. The woman told the authorities that Pell was a friend of her nephew Bjorn, and told them that Bjorn had been out of town, giving them a photograph of him. Pell was subsequently arrested and brought in for questioning. The investigators interrogated Paul, demanding to know whether he had any accomplices in what he did. But Paul always responded by saying that he didn't have an accomplice at all, none whatsoever. Medical examiners observed Paul to have been icy calm, speaking about the robbery and murders in a casual manner with no remorse. Paul told the authorities that he hadn't discussed his plans with anybody else and he had been the only sole person to plan it. Paul did exactly what he had been programmed to do under Bjorn's hypnosis, and doctors began to come to the conclusion that he was psychotic. Bjorn was investigated as a suspect in this case, though his alibi at the time of the crimes checked out, he had been out of town, and so the investigation into Bjorn was dropped and Paul was held to await trial. Bjorn's dreams, his plans, his year of work had paid off, he had committed the perfect crime. A crime that he will never be charged with. A crime that his victim would take the fall for. A victim that would stay loyal to the end due to his hypnoprogramming and manipulation. At least, that's what Bjorn believed. But in reality, the police began to make breaks on the case. A prisoner, who had been in the same area as Bjorn and Paul when they had been imprisoned, came forward claiming that Paul was virtually a slave giving up all his personal possessions and even much of his prison food to him. The coat, or trigger sign, which always sent Paul into a deep trance, was the sign of an X. And Bjorn had conditioned his subject that whenever the sign was made, he went straight into a state of somnambulance. This prisoner went to say that he believed, even though Paul had actually been the one to carry out the crimes, Bjorn had been the mastermind behind him, controlling his every move. More prisoners began to further come forward, and they confirmed the same thing. Pell had been Bjorn's puppet. Despite this testimony, Pell continued to maintain that he had been the sole person to plan and carry out the robberies and murders, though one of the first medical professionals to assess Pell actually diagnosed him as having a, quote, psychotic-like condition. A condition likely caused by him being subjected to prolonged, intensive hypno-training. The police knew that Pell wasn't telling the whole truth, and they knew that they had to figure out a way to break Pell so that he would come clean. And so they decided to question Pell again, only this time with Bjorn in the room. During this questioning, the police immediately noticed that Bjorn had been sat forward with elbows on his knees, his arms crossed and hands on his shoulders, making a clear X sign. When Bjorn was instructed to sit properly, he changed his position, though immediately crossed his legs. 
The questioning lasted for around three hours, throughout all of which Bjorn stared deeply into Pell's eyes. The authorities took note of the fact that whenever Bjorn made an X sign, Pell would renew his confessions and categorically deny that Bjorn had any involvement. It's interesting to note that as Pell was being held pending trial, Bjorn wrote letters to him, which he always signed off by using the letter X. One source even details of how Bjorn had paid another prisoner to draw X marks on the walls where Pell could see them. Sensing that the authorities might be onto him, Bjorn hired and enlisted the help of one of the best attorneys that money could buy to defend him in court. The police called in one of Denmark's top hypnosis experts, Dr. Paul Reiter, who was a lecturer at the University of Copenhagen on psychotherapy and psychosomatic medicine, and an expert on criminal psychiatry. Dr. Reiter would later state that until he met Pell during this case, he didn't believe that hypnosis to carry out criminal acts was possible. Dr. Reiter worked hard to try to break through the years of hypnoprogramming that Pell had been subjected to, and after months of trying, he was finally able to get to the truth. Pell began to tell Dr. Reiter all about his relationship with Bjorn, and began to reveal the truth of what had happened over the course of the four years of hypnoprogramming by the hands of Bjorn. During the court hearing in this case, the police made the mistake of seating Bjorn and Pell next to one another. Witnesses who sat close to Bjorn and Pell claimed to overhear Bjorn telling Pell to remember his duty to X. It took Dr. Reiter 10 days to undo the damage that this had caused to the progress he'd made to reversing the hypnoprogramming on Pal, eventually getting him back to how he had been before the court hearing. In a bad turn of events, Bjorn's defense team managed to get Pal's attorney dismissed from the case, which meant the new attorney for Pal had just two weeks to get ready to argue one of the most complex and bizarre legal cases in Danish legal history. When the trial finally commenced, Bjorn and Paul were sat next to each other again. And of course Bjorn was sure to remind Paul of his loyalty to X. The trial was long and complicated, and as it came to a close, Bjorn and Paul were given a week to read a report prepared by Dr. Reiter on Paul. It's important to note that during this week Bjorn was forbidden from seeing Paul. The report itself detailed that the case could easily be won by proving that Paul could be hypnoprogrammed. The report was blunt and didn't have any regard for the sensitivities of Paul, someone who still hadn't fully processed emotionally and psychologically what happened to him. Dr. Reiter, though, did try to get the court to delay this from happening, citing that Paul needed more time to prepare for the clinical style that the report had been written in. But the court denied Dr. Reiter's request and Bjorn's defense team demanded to see the report immediately. It was then said that Dr. Reiter couldn't see Paul until two days prior to the next court date. Understandably, this report caused Paul a lot of distress, giving him nightmares about X and what he'd gone through. Dr. Reiter attempted to calm the nightmares that Pell suffered from, though when he appeared back in court, he was clearly mentally exhausted and not in a good way. It was vital that Dr. Reiter could demonstrate in the courtroom that Pell's loyalty to X had actually just been an obedience to Bjorn. And so, Pell was induced into a hypnotic state in the courtroom. 
He struggled against what he described to be a dark angel that threatened to throw him into hell for his disobedience. This heavily distracted Pell from Dr. Reiter's attempts at demonstrating the influence Bjorn had over him. Pell fell further and further into this hallucinated hell, though, as he did, he saw X and Dr. Reiter come together and form into one being. To Pell, they had both made him do things that he was not aware of, both messed with his mind, and there was no difference between X and Dr. Reiter. When Pell came to, something he did without being prompted to, he broke out into violent sobs, overcome by his emotions. Dr. Reiter tried to induce him again, but it failed. Pell jumps from his seat in such a sudden manner that guards jump forward to protect Dr. Reiter, with more officers rushing to restrain Pell, but Pell broke free from them all and ran into the hallway of the courthouse where he stopped. Dr. Reiter then calmed Pell down and then sedated him back in the courtroom. He demonstrated to the court that even though he'd been sedated, Pell couldn't be hypnotised anymore. Pell told the court of what he'd seen, of how he'd fallen to hell, his wrestle with X and how Dr. Reiter and X had combined. Dr. Reiter initially didn't believe Pell's accounts and Pell agreed that it wasn't logical at all. He said, quote, it's not logic, but my soul that's speaking, my soul which is in shreds. It is my unconscious parts, and that has nothing to do with logic. From that moment onwards, Dr. Reiter would be unable to hypnotise Pell ever again. The trial ended up stretching out over several years, with Bjorn's defence team trying to prove that Pell was a liar and was insane. Despite their best efforts though, which included an expert witness that testified that nobody would do anything against their will under hypnosis, the judge and the jury reached a verdict against Bjorn. They found Bjorn Nielsen guilty on the charges of robbery, attempted robbery and manslaughter. The judge and jury had concluded that serious criminal acts could be caused by a criminal hypnotist's manipulations of a somnambulist subject. Then the attention of the court turned to Paul. The jury found that Paul was also guilty and he was sentenced to life in a psychiatric institution for the criminally insane. Dr. Reiter tried to negotiate to have Paul move from a psychiatric institution to a hospital, though shortly after being given to the go-ahead, Bjorn's defense team submitted new information that reopened the case. Paul had actually secretly sent a letter to Bjorn's defense team after he'd realized that he would never be a free man. And in this letter, he admitted to all of the crimes and denied once more that Bjorn had nothing to do with them. Another letter was then sent by Paul to Bjorn's defense team asking for the world hypnosis to be removed from the case completely. Once more, Paul's legal team asked the court to provide another psychiatric hypnosis specialist, which angered Paul so much that his defense team was made to quit. Paul's new defense lawyer accepted Paul's new request, that he had been guilty of all the crimes and Bjorn had no involvement. It was now down to the appeals court to try and figure out which of Paul's three confessions was the real one, the confession that was the truth. Amongst all of this, Bjorn began to write letters to the courts in which he referred to Pell as a poor psychotic fellow, and Bjorn began to write letters to Pell again, something that the courts permitted him to do. When Pell appeared on the stand in the appeals court, 
His demeanor was one of aggression, cynicism, and dishonesty. It's interesting to note that Dr. Reiter attended the appeal healings as an observer, and he described Pell by stating, quote, His artificially created secondary personality was now plainly dominant. One of the head doctors at the institute where Pell was being held testified that during his stay at the hospital, Pell had been well behaved, always quiet, and behaved in a way contrasting to the way he behaved in the courtroom. This head doctor further stated that Pell rarely spoke of the case, though when he did, he gave statements that contradicted what he had told the court. On one occasion, Pell told this doctor that, quote, of course, hypnosis played a part in what had gone on, and that, quote, anyone ought to be able to see all that is in Dr. Reiter's reports can't be wrong. This head doctor even noted the effects that Bjorn had on Pell whenever they were around each other, and Bjorn's ex-related gestures. Dr. Reiter was called to testify, though forbidden from talking to Pell, and after his testimony, the court agreed to stop any further communications between Bjorn and Pell. However, Bjorn had already convinced a prisoner staying in the same area as Pell to give Pell instructions from X. This resulted in Pell giving over his parents' full inheritance to this new prisoner, who actually escaped from prison. This prisoner was eventually captured and confessed to everything. In May of 1957, the Court of Appeals issued a preliminary report which evaluated Pell's mental state as being, quote, an artificially established induced psychosis created and developed through the influence of another person, making use of all the ways and means at his disposal, including hypnosis. It further went on to state that, quote, induced impulses, post-hypnotic suggestions, had been used by Bjorn to exploit his control over Pell with criminal intent. Despite this report, a month later, the appeals court came to the conclusion that Pell's second confession was the one that matched the evidence best, and so they found him guilty once more and refused any further appeals. In what can only be described as mercy, Pell would only spend a few more years in prison. Bjorn's defense team, though, did appeal his conviction to the European Court of Human Rights, which ultimately ruled in Bjorn's favor. Bjorn Nielsen was released from prison in 1967, and following his release, he continued to practice hypnosis and even went to write a book on hypnosis. In 1974, Bjorn took his own life by ingesting cyanide. The exact details of what happened are largely unknown, and the reasoning is unclear. In 1967, Paul was pardoned and released from prison. He ended up changing his name from Paul Hardrop to Paul Wishman, and tried to distance himself from everything that could link him to his former name and the crimes he'd been involved in. Paul passed away due to natural causes in 2012, and his girlfriend at the time had no idea as to what had happened to him in the 50s and 60s. And that's everything that we have for you in this case. Thank you so much to Nikki for jumping on this episode and helping me tell the complicated story of the Copenhagen hypnosis murders. Make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. You can find my Twitter and Instagram in the description down below, along with my Twitch channel in the pinned comments and at the top of the description. Be sure to go over to Nikki's channel and subscribe to her there. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.
A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice, and support.